Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. We start a new series. I don't know about you, but I remember some years ago as I was kind of really just beginning to study the Bible, I was trying to figure out how it all kind of came together. Do you know what I'm saying? Like what was going on when? When were prophets when? Who overlapped and where were they? And what was all the goings on? You know, I don't know when you read the Bible, I've always tried to just put that together. And so on the beginning, I'm gonna try to put a little bit of this together for you. Does that sound good? Uh, Because I wanna give you some background. And I think in getting the background to the book of Daniel, you're gonna be able to better understand what's going on in the book of Daniel. So I provided a little bit of something for you here. I'm gonna survey you just a little bit. So you get this kind of this uh, big picture of, of the Bible or the narrative of the Bible. Let's go back. So the book of 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, and I'm so nice because I've provided this for you up on the screen. And for those of you that have phones, you can just go boop, and you've got your notes. There you go. In the book of 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, it deals with much of the time leading up to the falls of both the northern kingdom and Judah. They had a divided kingdom, so a lot of the history is found there. They also cover the destruction of Judah by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you ever heard of him? Because he's gonna be coming up here in just a little bit. So they cover the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, which is what the book of Daniel is going to be talking about. Jeremiah, so he's my namesake. Uh, Years ago, apparently my parents debated on what they were going to name me, and my dad was thinking Jeremiah. My mom thought that just sounded too old. So I went with Jeremy, and we kind of cut it in off. But the I-A-H at the end of those names is actually the name of God. I-A-H would be like saying Yahweh. So the name Jeremiah means God's chosen or Yahweh's chosen. Jeremiah was one of the prophets during the time leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and the exile. And then you have two other guys. You have Ezekiel and you have Daniel. They were written while the Jews were in exile. Then you have a guy named Ezra. He deals with the return of the Jews as promised uh, 70 years before God by the guys Jeremiah and Isaiah. So there's gonna be an exile and then there's going to be a deliverance. And then you have this guy named Nehemiah. How many of you have ever heard of him? He covers the return and the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile was over. Well, we just went through the Old Testament and we did it pretty quickly. How do you feel out there? For those of you that took your picture, that's great. It's a way to remember it. But it got me thinking, so why were they in exile to begin with? You know, when you go in exile, and especially when you're talking about, these are the people of God. Why would there be a time of exile? There were a couple of things. One is probably something that you wouldn't think about, at least naturally, but you have to go to Leviticus 25 to get it. God said to his people that every seventh year, and you gotta remember these were farmers, right? A lot of the way that they just made their living was they were farming. And uh, there was this command by God in Leviticus 25 that every seventh year they were supposed to let the land rest. Now, modern science has kind of caught up with what was going on in the command of God back then. And the reason for that was, if you don't let the land rest, it's going to basically soak up all of the nutrition and nourishment. 
and it's not the best use of the ground, and it's also going to keep you from being able to basically yield these kinds of crops in the future. And so God knew this about the earth that he created, and he said, I want you to leave it alone. Now, they would have to prepare for this. Hey, the seventh year is coming. We need to kind of store up the provisions, and everybody's going to be taken care of. It's all fine, but we're going to honor God because he created the world, and we want to honor him and the commands that he gave us and the care of the world that he created. Shocker, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And I know you're wondering, you're like, well, how long did they not listen to God with regard to something like this? And the answer is 490 years. Now that's a lot of not listening. Is that fair? I mean, I know there's some parents out there that get annoyed because you've said something to your children like twice. Do it for 490 years. See how you feel about it. That's what God was doing with these people. That's an example. But the other thing that we know is that idolatry was rampant. They, they were giving themselves over and worshiping things that they never should have worshiped before. And as a result, God says it's enough. To his own people, it's enough. And so that's the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is how to be a faithful witness in a dark and hostile environment. Now you need to understand in, in this book, unlike other books in the Bible, this book is not written from the inside. This book is written when they're on the outside. Let, let me show you. Let's look at Daniel chapter one, verses one and two. Here's what it says. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim, now just stop for one second. First, I have somebody that's signing a name, Jehoiakim, down here, and let's pray for him right now. <laughs> We're in the Old Testament for a little bit, and anytime we do that, all my signers are like, why, why? Um, here's the thing about Jehoiakim. He was not a great leader, and that's probably an understatement. He was not a great leader. As an example, I'm talking about a spiritual leader. Part of the job of the king was to spiritually lead the people. This guy just didn't do it. And one example of this is there was a time where he had the scr Jeremiah's scroll brought in. And as it was being read, he was literally taking shears and he was cutting it up and he was throwing it into the fire. This was a man that had no patience nor practice for the word of God. And it also impacted his leadership and the way that he led the people, meaning he didn't. But he's in his third year of reign in Judah. And in that time, it says in verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. Now, who did it? And the answer is God allowed it. He allowed it. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and he placed them in the treasure house of his God. Man, that's a lot going on. So King Jehoiakim, he was Judah's 19th king after King David, and he continued to lead Israel basically in a spiritual downward spiral of unbelief. He was the guy leading the charge in it. He was known for compromise, and he was known for blatant rebellion. Now, you look at this and you go, I don't know. I mean, God is bringing like, judgment down on his own people, and wouldn't it be great if there was like some warning about this in advance instead of just like, now I'm gonna judge you. And the answer is, they were warned. They had been given warning. God had warned Israel that if they continued to walk on this path, he would send them into exile. It wasn't just, you're walking the wrong way, it's literally, I'm going to kick you out. 
They knew this in advance. And so in 605 BC, God keeps his promise. And all you have to do is read 2 Kings 24 and you'll see it there. It, 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 it kind of strikes me in this, before we like really get deep into this book, because it's a fascinating book. There is a cautionary tale in here for us, and I want you to hold on to this for just a second. I mean, you think it's beyond him, meaning God, to send you into some kind of exile. I, I don't think that. I don't think that about myself. I, I think it's perfectly within his rights to do it, if that's what it takes to get me back to him. That's what I see. And we're given this warning by Paul, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. So we hold this in a good balance here. On the one hand, God gives witness, he gives correction, he gives warning, he gives time. That's mercy. He also has a limit, and that's judgment. We, we hold to both. And so with that in mind, let's keep reading. In, in Daniel chapter one, verses three and four, says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, let's give him a second. So the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who've been brought to Babylon as captives. Here's what he said, verse four, select only the strong, healthy, good-looking young men. Make sure that they're well-versed in every branch of learning. They're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and they're suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He has a, a kingdom that is expanding. And as your kingdom expands, one of the things that you have to do is make sure that you have leadership, basically to cover the expansion of the places that you're taking over. That makes sense. More territory, more leaders are needed. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he has a plan for the way that this is going to work. Instead of coming in and saying, what I'm going to do is I'm personally going to rule over everything because that's not sustainable, that won't work. What he does is he identifies people from the people that he takes over. He pulls them into his palace. He wines and dines them. He gets them enamored with the Babylonian way of life. But notice he has some people that he's looking for here. He wants them to be men that are good looking. They're really intelligent. Have you caught, did you catch that? And the reason that he's doing it is, is because he can have them take over leadership. He can hand it off to them because who is going to do a better job of getting these people to follow him? Him or the people that they know? He's like, I'm going with the people that I know, that they know. That's who I'm gonna go with. So the people that they know, the people that they trust, if I can win them over, then I win the rest of them over to me, and then we can keep on expanding. This is what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, and that's how he identified Daniel and some of his friends. If you read the rabbinic tradition, they saw Daniel, and then some of the guys that you're gonna run into, Mishael and Azariah, as direct descendants of King Hezekiah. Think about what this means. It doesn't just mean that they're good looking. That doesn't hurt, right? Um, they're really intelligent. They have beards that would make the Duck Dynasty guys jealous. They've got all of that and they're noble. They've got political pull. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Those are my guys. Those are my guys. And so he pulls them into his court. Now, so why are we doing all this talk about Babylon? And the answer is, well, it's because where they were exiled to. So that's the quick answer. 
But here's the more, I think, deep answer, is because there is something really important in terms of symbolism at work here. There's a deep symbolism at work here. Because Babylon refers to a specific kingdom either in the second century or the sixth century BC. I'm not really even worried about that. But it was located in what is modern day Iraq. So if you go over into modern day Iraq and you go into Baghdad, which is the capital, and you drop yourself about 59 miles down, you would run into Babylon. Back then, it was one of the most majestic and powerful empires that there was on the earth. Now it looks like, well, sand. It looks like sand. In fact, if you were to go back, there was a guy named Saddam Hussein. Anybody remember him? One of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to go back into what was ancient Babylon in Iraq and he wanted to rebuild it. Basically as a monument to its history. Basically to its former glory. That didn't happen, it's still sand. But you get the idea, right? This is what is going on. This is the place. But in the Bible, pay attention to this. Babylon also represents a spiritual power at work in every secular kingdom in every secular age. It's not just an ancient empire. It's a symbol. You see this in the New Testament. The early Christians used Babylon as a code name for Rome. Even though Rome was miles away from the ancient city of Babylon and had no political connections to Babylon at all. Peter refers to it that way. If you go to the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes the apostle John's name for the whole world system that stands in opposition to Jesus. That's how he refers to it. Did you notice something in verse two when we were reading it where it said where, the, where Babylon was located at? It said it's located to the land of Shinar. Did you catch that? If you read the Bible, I'm gonna encourage you to maybe read slowly. Because sometimes what we do is we hit a word like Shinar and then we just keep reading. Maybe you want to read it like this. Where's that? Why does it matter? And the answer is, it's actually found in another part of the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 11, verse 2. And for those of you that don't remember, let me remind you. Shinar, where all mankind gathered together in order to build a great tower and to make a name for themselves. Do you remember the name of that tower? The Tower of Babel. So you go 59 miles, maybe 60, just south of Baghdad, you're running into Babylon. Babylon referred to as Shinar in Genesis chapter 11, verse two, which is where the Tower of Babel was built, which was a huge monument that basically said of the people to God, thanks, but we'll pass on you. We'll build a kingdom ourselves." It's that place. A lot of history there, isn't there? And here's the question that comes to us from the book of Daniel. All of, this, all of this is going on. What does faithfulness to God look like in a secular realm controlled by secular powers? What does faithfulness to God look like? Let's get back to the story for a second. Daniel is one of four guys, Duck Dynasty, right? Good looking, smart, all the things, healthy, athletic. They're being brought in and they're being told to train them up in the ways of Babylon. You remember that from Nebuchadnezzar? So they're being brought in. In verse three, it says that they were put under, it says one of the chief officers of Nebuchadnezzar. But let me fill that out for you a little bit because most of your translations actually say that he was put under the chief eunuch 
of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, for those of you that don't know what a eunuch is, it's basically a man that has had his man parts removed. And the reason that they would do that back then is because as you would take over someplace, you would conscript people to come into your service. You might even bring them into your palace or your court. And one of the things that you did not want to happen was for them to mess with your women. That way you could leave, you would have no worries as to whether or not something's happening when you've left the building. In chapter, in chapter one, a number of Old Testament scholars think, yep, and this actually happened to Daniel and his friends. We're not sure. But he was put under the chief eunuch's charge. Now think about that. If you were to take a look at what most scholars think about Daniel, Daniel and his friends are probably 14, 15, maybe 16 years old at this point in their life. They're high school students. Everything around them has been destroyed. The most sacred spaces that they have have been desecrated. Their families have been getting killed. We've been witnessing this just yesterday. They've been pulled from their land and taken to a foreign land. And let's imagine for a second that Daniel and his friends are actually made eunuchs, which is a very fair reading of the, of the text. Here's what that means for them. You're 15 years old and you know you won't have a wife and you won't have children. All of that, boom, just hits. That's his life. That's what's going on. And it's not just that. But Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to change their names. Now, you may sit there and go, well, who cares? Here's why it matters. Back in that culture, when you named something, you were exercising a power over them. I control your identity, not you. I control your destiny, not you. I tell you who you are. It's power. And notice what he does. Daniel whose Hebrew name means Yahweh is my judge. He changes his name to Belteshazzar. Baal protects the king. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious. He changes his name to Shadrach. You are under the command of Aku, which was the moon god that they worshiped. You have Mishael. There is none like Yahweh. His name is changed to Meshach. There is none like Aku. Remember, that's the moon god. Azariah, his name is Yahweh has helped me. His name is changed to Abednego. You are the servant of Nebo, who, by the way, was the Babylonian god of wisdom. It wasn't just that they lost their home. It wasn't just that they lost their families. It wasn't that they just lost their places of worship. They were told, you will not worship God anymore. And in fact, you will worship who I tell you to worship. This is what Daniel is under. You have to keep in mind something here. These are real people. Sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we kind of forget that if we're not careful. It's just like we're reading another novel. These are real people. These are real happenings. So again, what does faithfulness in this kind of environment look like? And we get a little bit of an answer in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. It says, but Daniel, so all this, this is who you will worship. This is the life that you will have. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. 
And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. But Daniel. For those of you that mark your Bible, maybe you want to mark that. So he's denying snacks. I have to wonder why that's what he denied. There are a number of reasons that are brought up. One is probably the food had been uh, consecrated to the worship of the Babylonian gods. And so maybe in that respect, Daniel was like, I, I don't want to eat that because of who you have consecrated this to. But the problem with that is, is that he still eats. Probably all of the food was being consecrated to the gods. And so it's like, I won't eat that, but I'll eat that. Well, if it's all been consecrated, that's not going to make a point. Here's what probably is going on here is that Daniel is having basically the best food that you can think of brought to him. He's being wined and dined. He's being wooed to buy into the Babylonian way of life. And here's what he says. I'm basically going to take on a diet that will give proof that Yahweh is going to take care of me. It will be proof to me. And in fact, we know that it wasn't to make a, like a political, he's not trying to score a political point here. Because if you read chapter one, as it says, he made this decision privately. The word did not get back to the king that he was denying the food that was coming his way. This is not like a big gotcha to Nebuchadnezzar. It was something that he and the guys were doing to prove something to themselves in the situation that they were in. We're going to be faithful and God is going to take care of us. And it reminds us of something that's really, really important. You do the right thing, you're probably going to suffer for it like they did. But I'm telling you, a consistent biblical theme is that those who honor God, he will honor you. He will honor you. Doesn't mean there won't be suffering, but there'll be honor. This is also important to notice. Uh, in the midst of all this, his people, God is judging his own people, right? And in spite of it being a time of judgment, God is giving. He's still giving to them. He gave sympathy to the chief official for Daniel and his friends. You're going to find favor in this guy. That didn't happen, then the diet change wasn't going to happen. God gave him favor with them so that this could happen. God is giving. He gave Daniel and the guys, if you look in chapter one, verse 17, God gives them in the midst of everything going on, he gives them wisdom and he gives them understanding. So even in the midst of a time where there is judgment for a people that has walked away from God, you still see God giving. God is giving. And here's the first principle of Daniel that I want you to remember for this study. And I love what one pastor said, you can't make a difference unless you're different. You can't make a difference unless you're different. Daniel and his friends, they were gonna be different. The rest, most of the, their friends had already given themselves over to the worship of other, other gods as it was. But Daniel, there was just something different. And let me remind you of this. In the Old Testament, Babylon, that was a city in the New Testament. It's a spirit. The spirit of Babylon was one of domination. They wanted to come and with their military, they wanted to take you over by force. They wanted to force you into their way of life. They wanted to force you into their way of belief. It was all about force. The spirit of Babylon was active in politics. The spirit of Babylon is active in politics. It was active in Nazi Germany. It was active yesterday. The spirit of Babylon wants to take control over key institutions and principles. For example, the spirit of Babylon wants to tell us what marriage is. The spirit of Babylon wants to define what a family is. The spirit of Babylon wants to take over control of how we use the word gender. It's a spirit. It's not just a city. 
And to, and to do it, the spirit of Babylon focuses on taking control over institutions that will impact your everyday life. They want control over education and they want control over government. That's a spirit. It's pervasive from generation to generation. Again, Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. It wasn't Babylon. It's a spirit of it. The spirit of Babylon is alive today. It's alive today. The spirit of Babylon is alive in something like human trafficking. That's the spirit of Babylon. It's everywhere. And by the way, it's drawing you in. It's whining and dining you. It's trying to enamor you with its culture. It's like, come on. But when I see that, here's the other thing that I see. This is also a time for a Daniel moment. It's an opportunity for a Daniel moment. Here's some things that I want to, as I wrap this up this morning, there are really just a few things that at the beginning of this study, I want you to lock in on. And so for those of you that are note takers, let me encourage you to take some notes. And here's the first. And I go back to the beginning of this chapter to remind you of this. There's a limit to what God allows in his mercy. There's a limit to what God allows in his mercy. I mean, we're talking hundreds of years of blatant rebellion by people and eventually God says, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Uh, mercy was good for you. Judgment is what is needed. See, in mercy, he gives time to respond. That's one of the consistent themes in scripture is like walk a different way, turn around. You need to repent. You need to repent. God, God's own people need to remember this because the exile was for his own people. We're not beyond this. And maybe in fact, we need this. Maybe in fact, we need this. Here's the second thing. If you're in a season of correction, like these people were, receive it and let it do its work. Can I throw this out there? We don't suffer well. We don't suffer well. I, even though we are a people of the cross, I mean, what, what are we based on? We are based, everything, we are based on grace, but grace was, came at a tremendous cost. And you think of the suffering of Jesus on the cross, and he looks at us, he says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Take it up. It's a way of suffering. You're giving yourself up. That's what this is. We don't suffer well. Generally speaking, we want to get ours. That's too much of the spirit of Babylon. Not so much the spirit of Christ. If you're in a season of correction, can I encourage you to let it do its work? See, Daniel and his friends, they were in exile even though they were righteous. It's everything else that was around them that was burning to the ground. And that's kind of revealing of another important truth. Sometimes you have people that are following God that get wrapped up in the mess that's around them. But isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus did? He got wrapped up in the mess that was around him. Daniel began this journey as a teenager. And then you go, well, how long did it last? And the answer is, uh, for about the next 69 years of his life. You would love to sit there and think, and then three days later, didn't work like that. It's for the next 69 years of his life. Remember I said that there were a couple that were writing during the time of all this going on in exile. One of those was Ezekiel. And listen to what it says in Ezekiel 14, verses three through five. They've remembered things that will make them fall into sin. Um, excuse me, they've embraced things that will make them fall into sin. And, and he goes, why should I listen to you? Tell them this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts. They've fallen into sin 
And then they go to a prophet asking for a message? By the way, be careful when you ask a prophet for a message. You might get one. And they go to a prophet asking for a message? Here's what he says. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer that their great idolatry deserves. And I will do this to capture the, their minds and the hearts of all of my people who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. I'll give you a message. It's just, are you going to pay attention? The Babylonian captivity, if you study history, this is something that's really interesting. They're held in captivity for 70 years. They go back to their land. They rebuild. This is one of the themes of Nehemiah, right? They rebuild. You know what never happened again? They never gave themselves over to idolatry like this again. Maybe the lesson worked, but it came after 70 years of suffering. It came after 70 years of suffering. We need to remember that. Here's something else that we need to remember. In the midst of all of this, even if it's a time where God brings judgment, even on his own people, God will sustain you. God will sustain you. With Daniel, it starts with him as a young man in the third year. But if you keep reading, the way that we know that God was, was faithful to Daniel, if you look at Daniel 1.21 and moving on, it says that he was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God sustained him from one person that was in political leadership until God overthrew him. He sustained Daniel through the whole show. He will do it for him. He will do it for you. It's pretty shocking because I told you that Babylon is in modern day Iraq. And you go, well, who did he use to overthrow him? And the answer is Cyrus. And you go, well, where was Cyrus? Well, he ruled in what's modern day Iran. That's where he came from. I love what Tremper Longman says, and this is something that I kind of try to keep locked in. One of the things that we constantly pray, we pray that this would be a Christian nation. The interesting thing, though, is Tremper Longman says, Daniel teaches us that the struggle is not to make the culture Christian, but how a Christian can live in a hostile culture. That's what Daniel's trying to teach you. There's a famous line that's attributed to Martin Luther. He was the, ref the famous reformer. He said, the courage of the soldier is tested in how well he stands where the battle is the hottest, not in how brave he postures himself when the battle has passed. And he's right. My favorite verse in all of this book, and I'm gonna jump to the 12th chapter, even though we're not there yet. My favorite verse in this entire book is found in Daniel chapter 12, verse three. It says, those who were wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You burn like a star. Daniel and his friends, they were able to make a difference because they were different. They were standing out. Something was unique. They burned like a star. This is a challenge to Christ and his church to follow their example, because we live in a time where very clearly the spirit of Babylon is real. The question that we have to answer as a church, are we gonna burn like a star, like they did? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.